I'm Megan Rosenthal. And I'm Alexis Lee. And this is the Mayo Lab Podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Mail Lab Podcast, Season 2. My name is Alexis Lee, and as always, I'm joined with Megan Rosenthal. And we have a very special guest today, um, and we're diving into the stigma around eating disorders. Um, And we have Dr. Liz Woodruff with us today. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Liz. Thank you. Welcome. Um, we're so excited to have you, but will you, before we dive in and get really nitty gritty, will you just give us a little bit of background on how you got into this field, what you study and kind of where you are today? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been interested just in being a therapist for several decades, you know, um, as a, as a teenager, I had my own foray into therapy, um, and found it incredibly useful and decided sort of then and there that that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And there were some moments here and there where I panicked about the idea of going to grad school and, you know, um, extending my education so far beyond undergrad and, and all the stress of that. So I thought about other little jobs here and there that, that I, that I quickly, you know, decided against because, um, it's just kind of been my calling, I guess, you know, for uh, at the risk of sounding hokey. Uh, and so I also have, you know, in my life been, been exposed um, through loved ones to eating disorders. And um, and then in grad school, I ended up working under a professor who was doing a lot of research actually on eating disorders in men um, hmm. and sort of the, the different ways that eating issues and exercise issues tend to manifest Um in cisgender men in particular. Um, And so she was focusing on that research. So I got involved in some of that, um, did Hmm. my dissertation on eating and exercise pathology in men. Um, And then from there just ended up, you know, moving, ended up, so this was in Dallas, in in the Dallas area. Uh, Finished up my graduate work and did a pre-doctoral internship um, in in Northern California at Stanford at Hmm. their student counseling center. Um, and actually at the time, I don't know if this is still true, but at the time Stanford had the highest rate, um, of eating disorders in the, of any Hmm. college campus in the country, you know, and, and there's really high rates of course on any college camp, college campus. I think this is true. I'm sure you guys see a lot of this, um, at Ole Miss, but really high rates of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. high achieving, you know, high standards for themselves and that type of kind of personality or temperament is also at high risk for developing eating disorders. And so I think, you know, the confluence of some of those variables at Stanford Mm -hmm. puts them at risk for having Mm -hmm. a high rate of eating disorders. So I specialized in eating disorders while I was there and then just sort of continued from there to develop and hone more and more expertise in working with eating disorders. I've worked in um, intensive outpatient programs, partial hospitalization programs, um, where I, you know, worked really intensively with teenagers and adults who have eating disorders. And now I run... Uh, so, so by some really long-winded chain of events that I'm not going to share here, maybe a different podcast, I can tell you about how I ended up back in Mississippi. I, I lived in Natchez as a kid, but back in Mississippi, came here about three years ago. I'm in the greater Jackson area, uh, and I have a private practice here where I am continue to specialize in eating disorders, uh, the wow. whole age range, really, the, the lifespan. Um, so I'll work with pretty much folks of all ages um, and presentations of binge eating disorder, anorexia, bulimia, subclinical eating disorders, the whole gamut. 
Wow. Well, I think we found the perfect and the best person to have this conversation with, Absolutely. and I'm really excited. Um, before we, as we get uh, dig in, digging into things, um, in your words, can you tell us the definition of an eating disorder is, like what it is clinically? Yeah, yeah. So, well, there are different types of eating disorders, so mm-hmm. they're all defined pretty differently, but if we wanted to sort of give an overarching idea of what an eating disorder itself is, um, I think I would say that it is um, when uh, someone is experiencing a heavy preoccupation with food, with their weight, with body image, and a disproportionate, or I guess when I say disproportionate, what I mean is really much more than one would expect um, of one's self-esteem or self-worth is um, sort of couched in how much they're eating or how little they're eating or what their weight is, how much they're exercising. Um, And that there's a sense of an inability to control, either control if one isn't eating enough and an inability to sort of nourish oneself properly or a lack of control when one feels they're eating too much and is unable to sort of manage um, in that regard as well. And, but, but, you know, the thing about eating disorders is the symptoms themselves manifest physically through food, through the body. But the way I sort of look at it, the way I conceptualize it is that the behaviors and the ways things are manifesting through the body are actually um, representative of deeper psychological mechanisms that are that are happening on an underlying level, right? So if someone's struggling with anger, if someone's struggling with sadness, grief, depression, if someone has a trauma history, if someone's got, um, if someone experiences a really severe struggle in expressing and processing emotion properly, it can manifest through an eating disorder through the body. And so while the food and the body are the outward expression of what I'm referring to, um, they're almost always kind of symbolic of what's going on under the surface. So we never, mm-hmm. well, I as a therapist never just address those behavioral, physical man- manifestations only. Mm-hmm. We always have to get at sort of what's underlying it, in addition mm-hmm. to dealing with some of the things that are more acute or more serious that are happening on the surface. Is that? clear as mud <laughs> no no i think that no thank you for that overview and i think we'll as we continue talking you know mm-hmm. we, i think we'll we'll likely get into some of the different oh, then, types okay. of of eating disorders as you referred to but i think that gives us a really great overview to kind of plant our feet down and to start mm-hmm. um and I, I i think alexis shared this with you before but one of the things that kind of the through theme for this season of the podcast is really thinking about and talking about stigma. And I I would love for us to dive into right off the bat, because you, you, when you were outlining some of your background and and areas of work that you've done in the past, you kind of hit on something that tweaked in my mind, right? And this was eating disorders in, in men, right? Mm -hmm. Because we kind of assume or we kind of think historically um, that eating disorders are are a function of being a woman or, or of, you know, manifest themselves more often in women and not not so much in men but they do and so i'd love for you to kind of if you wouldn't mind walk us through kind of how they present in each of those groups and how they are different and similar to each other as it relates to because i love what we, i love what you were talking about too is this being the food and the the control of the body piece of it being a manifestation of stuff that's going on on the inside of us too so if you wouldn't mind walking through that i think that'd be really great sure absolutely yeah and it's it's complicated and um, you know, really multifaceted, but I, I would say sort of to 
to try and oversimplify it a little bit just mm-hmm. for ease of, of understanding and, and the sake of time, because I could go yes. on forever. You, you have to be careful with me because I really can, I can just go on and on and on. So keep me in check. But um, so, yeah, I think historically uh, eating disorders have been seen as an issue that affect white, straight, cisgender, affluent women, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it is true that high rates of eating disorders are seen in, in those populations, but um, not only those populations. Mm-hmm. So uh, just to speak very, very briefly on, on race and ethnicity, there's actually really no discernible difference among different ethnicities and races when it comes mm-hmm. to eating disorder prevalence. Hmm. Now, utilization rates wouldn't say that because you do see white women um, seeking resources and seeking treatment more often. Um, but unfortunately, you know, that that does not um, represent the prevalence rates. So, hmm. um, and a lot of that, and, and again, you know, in interest of time, I won't go into lots of detail unless you want to ask later. I'm happy to talk about it. But, um, you know, you see um, in populations of color, you know, you'll find lower utilization rates, less access often to insurance and, and mm. effective treatments, um, stigma and fear mm-hmm. around um, healthcare, around mental health care, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just um, lower rates, uh, let's say under diagnosis. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think white women are more likely to get diagnosed with eating, eating disorder um, because of this myth, because of this stereotype, right? People, right. physicians, for example, therapists may be less likely to assume um, a woman of color, for example, has an eating disorder mm-hmm. uh, because of these myths and these stereotypes, right? So mm-hmm. there are a lot of different reasons, but at any rate, um, but in men, we also see high rates of eating disorders and they can manifest a little bit differently though. Mm-hmm. So I do think that on average, the prevalence rates are lower based on research, but that may be due to stigma, right? So mm-hmm. the, the rates of eating disorders in men could definitely be underreported. And mm-hmm. again, underdiagnosed because of that stereotype that mm-hmm. women have eating disorders. And I think also, you know, even, you know, often parents are the first to notice that's, that their child has an eating disorder and eating disorders tend to develop, uh, age of onset tends to be in adolescence. The second highest, uh, excuse me, how would I say this? The second most common age of onset mm-hmm. would be actually college age. Mm-hmm. Um, but early adolescence, onset of puberty tends to be the most common time for someone to develop an eating disorder. And so parents tend to be the ones who notice it first. Mm-hmm. If parents aren't, then probably, again, a physician or maybe like a school, a teacher, a counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, but at any rate, I think, again, due to that stigma, um, often parents aren't even noticing if their sons are struggling with food and, and body image mm-hmm. issues. And again, there's just more of a reticence, I think, to talk about it among boys mm-hmm. on average. So again, mm-hmm. I want to be clear, I am overgeneralizing here. So I'm not I'm not catching all the nuances. But um, but what we tend to see with men is actually sort of split down the middle. So whereas the vast majority of cisgender women want to be thinner. And that's just mm-hmm. what the research demonstrates. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, again, I say vast majority, not everyone, but the majority of women do want to be, who report dis- body dissatisfaction want to be thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, the vast majority of men or boys who report body dissatisfaction, about 50% of them want to be smaller and actually about 50% of them want to be larger. So you'll mm-hmm. see different presentation and behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so women who are, and I, and I want to actually backtrack and make sure I made that clear. Not every woman wants to be thinner. I think that's sort of the way I phrase it. What I meant was 
the vast majority of women who are unhappy with their bodies, mm-hmm. who have body dissatisfaction, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Want mm-hmm. to be there. So with the boys, it's about, or with, with men, it's cisgender men, it's about 50, 50. And so with um, the men who want to be thinner, you might see more of like an anorexic presentation, you know, people who are restricting food intake, trying to lose weight. But actually with, with the cis men who want to be larger, you may be more likely to see something like um, risky muscle building behaviors, like using steroids, um, excessive weightlifting, lifting weights through injury, injuring oneself, um, and a real preoccupation and an obsession with um, with building muscle and becoming larger. And there's actually a clinical term for that called muscle dysmorphia when it becomes really extreme. Mm-hmm. And it's it used to be called reverse anorexia. So meaning that one has a distorted view of what their body looks like. They think they're much smaller than mm-hmm. they actually are. And they believe that they need to to gain a lot of muscle and, and get much larger. And they can engage in some really risky behaviors around that. And one last thing I, I want to say on, on gender, which is really important, is that actually we see um, exceedingly high rates of eating disorders in the, tr- sorry, let me turn my notifications off, um, high rates of eating disorders in the trans and the non-binary uh, communities. So trans folks are at a much higher rate, uh, uh, hmm. a, a much higher risk, excuse me, of mm-hmm. eating disorders than cisgender uh, communities are. And, you know, a lot of this is related to oppression, to transphobia, to experiences around prejudice, to feeling scared. Um, and then a lot of it is related to feeling dysphoric, you know, in one's body and wanting one's felt sense of gender to match, you know, what the, the world outside sees. And so um, if in particular, um, if folks are struggling to get access to gender affirming care or people in their community aren't people in their lives aren't affirming gender um sometimes they'll resort to disordered eating to work to change their bodies right to match you know their felt sense of gender and so um that's really kind of um an underrepresented community and Mm -hmm. one that i think really needs that we need a lot of awareness around just because the rates are staggering and then sorry one last piece to that too is that in addition so when you when working with trans folks, for example, you'll find that trans folks who have eating disorders often have high rates of suicidal ideation as well. Um, mm-hmm. And that's true in the queer community in general. That And there's mm-hmm. a lot of research on this. And I'd be happy mm-hmm. at the end if you want me to share any of those resources. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Trevor Project did an amazing study, the biggest of its kind, um, exploring eating disorders in the queer community. And so they found that Again, this is where a lot of this data comes from uh, in terms of the trans and non-binary communities. And and again, they found that for trans folks, there are higher rates of suicidal ideation in general. But in particular, that's true when you also have disordered eating on board. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so no. that was a lot of yeah. yeah. No, that was that great. Was, that yeah. was awesome. And thank you for for broadening that out and and capturing kind of the new the nuance of of what each of those different kind those different populations face as it relates to mm-hmm. disordered eating and and all of those different kinds of things. Because I think that um, one of the things that that we're really digging into in the season of the podcast is actually the weeds, right? Like is yeah. getting into the muck okay. and getting into the complexity of some of these things with the proviso being like, nobody's going to listen to us go on for four hours, but to really get in and understand what those differences look like. And so I'd love if we could just kind of 
do a little transition here um, to think through the stigma related to disordered eating and and I'd start off really if you could walk us through in in the folks that you work with around this condition what is the stigma that individuals are facing as they are thinking about or reaching out for care and you can cover any and all of the populations that you've talked about so far or however you want to manage that because I imagine based on what you've said so far that the stigma that each of those groups face is going to be slightly different because of the body that they inhabit right or the place from which they come yeah yeah absolutely and I think the stigma is it varies based on diagnosis as well or based on type of eating disorder that one has okay uh, and so I think maybe I'll start with um, with that piece of it, you know, sure. mm-hmm. um, I, and then and then within that, I'll talk about gender differences mm-hmm. to of stigma. Um, awesome. But, you know, so anorexia is considered a restrictive eating disorder. And I imagine most folks are familiar with it to some extent, at least mm-hmm. in, as far as sort of having the sense that anorexia tends to be when someone is not eating enough. Right. They're mm-hmm. they're eating uh, uh, low amount of calories based on what they need for, you know, their expected body weight for their level of activity, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, they tend to be very underweight, um, not always, you know, and so that's another reason I think we have stereotypes about people of anorexia that they look really, really underweight. They're frighteningly thin. Um, it, you can tell by looking at someone whether mm-hmm. they have anorexia or not. And that's not true. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, anorexia actually can happen in all different body types and someone can be dangerously um, restricting their Mm -hmm. food intake and they, but they may not be severely underweight. And so um, that's something that, that is, I think a misnomer um, out there, but also let's see. um, I think in terms of the shame, you know, as much as we live in a culture that tends to hypervalue thinness Mm -hmm. and especially for women, right, to, to value, to idealize a thin body. Um, there's also this mis- mixed messaging, I think, that we get in our culture mm-hmm. that you need to be thin, but you also need to eat enough and you need to be thin, but you shouldn't be dieting. And if you have to diet, then, you know, you're um, there's something wrong with you. And there's mm-hmm. just this sort of mixed messaging that happens. And often you'll see now this is really going to age me. And in fact, it's probably going to age me so much that a lot of people listening won't even know who I'm talking about, but that's okay. I have no shame, no ageism here. Um, <laughs> but you know, when I was maybe in college, um, a long time ago there, the, uh, let's see, I'm, I'm sure some of you remember Paris Hilton and oh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. now, I, now I just aged myself. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Megan. I really appreciate yeah. you kind of being in solidarity with me here. Of course, Alexis has no idea who we're talking about. I know exactly. I know exactly who we're talking about. Don't worry. Okay. Don't worry. Okay. Later okay. millennial. Don't worry. Yes. Okay. Okay. Got it. But yeah. Uh, so Paris Hilton and do you remember Nicole Ritchie, her mm-hmm. side yeah. that mm-hmm. they did like whatever that show was together? where they were living on a farm. And oh, yes. You remember yes. that? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. Well, I, I'm bringing this up because I remember very distinctly that Nicole Richie was considered, when she was on that show, people talked about how they thought she was fat and she was overweight and Paris Hilton was so thin, you know, and there was this mm-hmm. really gross, mm-hmm. um, perverted kind of focus on her body mm-hmm. and, um, and body shaming her. And then she developed anorexia and she lost a frightening amount of weight and became mm-hmm. quite thin. And mm-hmm. then I remember seeing 
like magazines. This was back when magazines still existed mm-hmm. and people go to the internet for everything too. But right. I remember seeing a magazine cover, you know, sh- shaming her for being too thin and, you know, and so yeah. I remember that actually very distinctly because it hit me how impossible it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that as much as we feel this pressure in our culture, mm-hmm. um, in particular women, whether cisgender or transgender, to be thin, there's mm-hmm. also a stigma around not nourishing one's body enough and having to try mm-hmm. too hard to be thin. Right. And there's a stigma around not eating enough. And a lot of the people I work with, regardless of gender, um, will tell me that there is a lot of embarrassment around mm-hmm. what they eat, around, you know, they, they do what they call performance eating, um, where they will eat around friends or they'll eat more around friends and family than they do when they're alone mm-hmm. so that people don't worry or people don't shame them for not eating enough, you know? So mm-hmm. despite what people might think, cause you'll, you'll hear a lot of glorification of anorexia mm-hmm. in our culture too. You know, I hear people mm-hmm. say things all the time, like, I wish I could be anorexic. I would never be able to do that. I know it's right. really, it, you know, and it's, I think it really speaks to just the glorification, right, mm-hmm. of thinness and the reverence mm-hmm. paid to people who can restrict their food intake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think as much as there is that sense, there is also a lot of shame inherent in having anorexia. And, you know, just for folks who don't have any familiarity with the illness, when someone has anorexia, it is an excruciating way to move through the world. Mm-hmm. There is an extraordinary focus on weight and body and food, and it takes up all of one's headspace. And mm-hmm. one's world and life becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And not to mention, you know, when your brain is in a state of starvation and when your body's really weak, um, you're pretty miserable physically and emotionally mm-hmm. the vast majority of the time. So mm-hmm. um, so I think for those reasons, there can be stigma too. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to anorexia. So I'll move on next to Bolivia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have some questions about that. No, no, no. I think I'm good, Alexis. Yeah, keep going. Yeah. No, this is great. No, this is awesome. Thank yeah. you. So I think with, with an illness like bulimia, you'll find even more stigma mm-hmm. um, and a lot more shame. I think on average, it actually is a little bit easier to hide bulimia mm-hmm. than anorexia because um, folks with anorexia, you know, like I said, they tend to be restrictive. And even if you can't tell by looking at them that they're underweight or that they have an eating disorder, you can often tell by some of their behaviors around food. Mm-hmm. They may be skipping right. meals. They're eating extremely, what you know, quote, healthy, but just really mm-hmm. low calorie, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But with bulimia, the, folks with bulimia tend, and again, I'm generalizing here, but they tend to eat um, a little more like someone who doesn't have an eating disorder when it comes mm-hmm. to their day-to-day eating. They're not mm-hmm. going to necessarily be as restrictive. Um, sometimes they might, but on average, you know, you're not going to see the extreme restriction in food intake. Um, but what you'll see is binge eating in secret, mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. So binge eating is when someone consumes um, a really high amount of calories that, that would be much higher than what we would expect someone to eat in one sitting. So that could be eating, you know, entire bag of chips, an entire large pizza, you know, and a carton of ice cream might be Uh considered a binge or having an entire birthday cake. You know, um, I've had patients who've eaten um, an entire box of of Cliff Bars as a binge, Hmm. you know, and so, um, and also often when someone's binge eating, they have this experience almost of having like an out of body um, Mm. sensation. So dissociation is actually the clinical term for that, but it's when, Mm. you know, when someone is 
not emotionally present. They're not mentally present that they feel like they're not in their bodies. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the functions of a binge is that it helps someone. And, and, you know, ultimately this is not necessarily a, a, an adaptive thing, but when someone's really overwhelmed with emotion or trauma, binge eating can help to dissociate or detach from those emotions. Yeah. And so often though, after a binge, an extreme sense of guilt and shame may come up. So there's a lot of stigma and shame around the binging, right? And we probably don't have to talk a whole lot about that because I think generally in our culture, we understand that there's so much stigma associated with, with what someone might consider quote overeating mm -hmm. or, you know, mm -hmm. um, or being out of control and not having willpower. So the stigma there and then the guilt and shame might lead someone to engage in what are called compensatory behaviors, but like trying to get rid of the food just consumed. So that could be through vomiting after eating, that can be through excessive exercise. Sometimes it can actually be restricting, you know, if someone mm. has a really significant binge, they might not eat for the rest of the day, or they might try not to eat tomorrow as a way to compensate for the calories that they had during the binge. Mm. And in particular with the binge and purging um, through vomiting, there's an immense amount of stigma and shame mm -hmm. around that. Um, and so generally what I find with my patients is they're extremely secretive about their disorder. And whereas again, anorexia is a little bit more difficult to conceal. I've worked with folks who, you know, have been dealing with bulimia for sometimes 20, even 40 years wow. and no yeah. one, no one knows, no one's wow. ever known. And they, wow. they've done such a, a, a job of, um, keeping it a secret and they're so embarrassed of it because of the stigma attached to that. So, and I think um, with binge eating disorder, you know, again, you'll find a lot of stigma. It wasn't until very recently in the last, I'm looking at my DSM book. Um, I forget when it came out, but it, it was quite recently in the last five, eight years or so, I forget. Um, but the most recent diagnostic manual for mm -hmm. mental illness, um, included includes binge eating disorder but that wasn't hmm. included previously yeah, right yeah and so you know it, it i think in the past folks who had binge eating disorder were just shamed and told that they had no control and you know that they needed to diet that is not a solution to binge eating in fact dieting tends to reinforce and perpetuate the binge eating because restricting our food intake makes us eat more <laughs> later mm -hmm. on right yeah Right, um, right. Yeah. And so it actually not an antidote. Dieting, it's a it's an intuitive response to a binge, but it is right. not it is not a useful one. Right. Um, but there's a lot of folks with binge eating disorder, if you know, they, they won't even seek mental health treatment because of that stigma. They may not even know themselves that it's a mental illness. They may just think, I'm I'm so lazy, I'm I have no willpower, what's wrong right. with me? And so it's like sort of a, a sense of that internalized stigma as well. Mm-hmm. You are listening to the Mayo Lab podcast. For more information and resources, visit themayolab.com. Now, back to the episode. Well, and I think I'm going to pause for a second because you mentioned um, binge eating disorder being added to the DSM manual. And and could you talk us through just for folks who might not understand, like why that's a, such a significant addition for folks who are suffering with this condition? Um, because I think that I think that it'll help folks understand kind of 
that this is, you know, it is a real condition. It has like any other, we were talking in in some of the previous episodes about, you know, um, substance use disorder being a chronic condition, just like diabetes, just like hypertension. And so if you could walk us through kind of why that's a really important addition for the, from from your perspective as a clinician. And also add of like going on to that of like why eating disorders in general are included in the mental health illness category. That's a great question. Actually, I'm going to start with that and that'll segue into the perfect. So yeah, eating disorders are considered a mental illness because there is an underlying psychiatric psychological component. So sort of what I was mentioning right at the beginning, right? And that I, that that's sort of hard to explain without ample time. So I'm, I'm trying to think of a really nice compact (laughs) way to explain it. But um, again, an eating disorder is a physical, concrete, behavioral manifestation of a deeper psychological struggle. Mm-hmm. So often it may be anxiety, it may be trauma, it may be, um, um, you know, struggles in one's family, all these different variables, genetics too, work together to contribute to an eating disorder. But it is always, there's a deeper underlying psychological mm-hmm component that has to be addressed. And if it's not, and only the behaviors of the eating disorder are addressed and resolved, the eating disorder will either uh, not fully resolve itself and one won't re- recover, or they someone might um, uh, resolve the eating disorder, but their symptoms might shift into substance mm-hmm. misuse or, you know, um, any other self-harm, any other kind of maladaptive coping, right? Uh-huh. The way I look at it is it's almost invariably an eating disorder is a response to unprocessed emotion, unprocessed trauma, things that somebody cannot put into words that they can't even reflect on because it's too big and hard and difficult and they haven't had the support they needed, whether it was in childhood or you know at any point in their lives uh-huh. to manage those big, hard, difficult things. Mm. Um, and so binge eating disorder, and that's why, that's why eating disorders are in the DSM in the mental illness diagnostic manual, because, um, it is a physical manifestation of a psychiatric problem, right? And binge eating disorder is, is in that, um, category, but historically, uh, like in, in the medical community, for example, folks who have binge eating disorder were not seen as having a psychiatric problem or an emotional problem. They were seen as having a weight problem. Right. And it was seen almost more as a character defect, right? You're, you don't have willpower. You uh, need to cut back on your food intake. What's wrong with you, right? Mm-hmm. Not a curiosity about, okay, what is it that's leading you to overeat? Is there some way you're using food to cope and manage stress mm-hmm. or emotion? What What's going on that's that's contributing to this? And now that binge eating disorder has been included in this manual, it's it's um, it's facilitated, encouraged a curiosity rather than a judgment mm-hmm. about someone mm-hmm. who's got issues around binge eating or overeating. And I think within the community of folks who have binge eating disorder themselves, it's helped them to recognize, okay, this isn't just that I am d- deficient. You know, this right. is that I have... Mm-hmm. Um, a psychological condition that leads me to use food to manage. Mm-hmm. And if I can mm-hmm. address those underlying struggles, then I can find a way to manage without having to turn to food. If it's mm-hmm. this, so, so again, sort of oversimplified, but that is in a nutshell the way I might explain mm-hmm. it. And so mm-hmm. it's really helped folks 
get the help they need and actually heal from the problem Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. opposed to just continuing to shame them and and keep encouraging them to diet which is only fueling in my yeah right yeah yeah and i think what you're saying is like such a great move and a step Mm -hmm. towards in our communities especially and like Mm -hmm. practitioners in general to help to you know destigmatize this and just meet people where they are and say it's not your fault in a way Um, And what you were saying earlier about it's people often hide it and it's very hard to recognize that when it's happening in someone. What advice would you give to family members and like really close unit friends around the person struggling? What signs would you look for? What, you know, changes in behavior, things of kind of like if they're suspecting maybe something, what would be the first thing you would point them to? Yeah. So in terms of signs, you know, again, that will vary based on the presentation, but psychological signs might be withdrawal, you know, that they're less engaged socially than they used to. You find that they're isolating a lot, depressed mood, um, keeping things to themselves, spending a lot of time. I think I I mentioned that already, but isolated, um, refusing to eat around others. I think Mm -hmm. with any eating disorder, you're going to find that to an extent, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, um, um, with binge eating or bulimia, you might find large quantities of food disappearing, like from the cabinet or something. With bulimia, you might find food wrappers in the trash can in the bathroom, right? Like people shouldn't be eating in the bathroom right. typically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you, with bulimia, you'll find, so the glands around the face, they're called the parotid glands, but um, you'll find that they tend to be swollen. So you'll you'll mm. see kind of swollen cheeks, swollen glands mm-hmm. in folks with hmm. bulimia. Um, in folks with anorexia, of course, you know, um, extreme weight loss, mm-hmm. if someone's lost their period, if they're a cisgender woman, um, you'll often find, um, you know, uh, that the folks who have anorexia will lose their periods, a real preoccupation with food, talking about food all the time an obsession with food, cooking food, cooking food for others, but not eating it, mm-hmm. baking lots of things, but not eating it. Um, you know, I, the list really goes on. I think that probably captures um, mm-hmm. the most telltale signs that I that come to mind immediately. And then in terms of how to broach this with loved mm-hmm. ones, it can be extremely delicate. And I think naming that dilemma can be really useful. You know, saying something like, look, I, I feel a lot of hesitation to bring this up because I don't want to upset you or push you away. And on the other hand, I fear that I would be really neglectful if I didn't talk about this with you and that I am mm-hmm. I've noticed these things, you know, and I just want you to know I'm here for you. And, you know, if it's a, if you're a friend um, or like a sibling or something, just saying I'm here for you. And if you want to talk, if you're a parent, you know, I think sometimes you being a little more proactive and saying like, I really, you know, well, let's go talk to someone about this mm-hmm. or um, get to the student counseling center or, you know, I'm sure there are folks there that can actively help to assess for an eating disorder and then help to triage for appropriate resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there was one other thing. Oh, and, you know, I mentioned earlier this idea of curiosity, like yeah. help me understand, like, what is it that instead of like, this is so bad, why are you doing this? This is going to kill right. you, which is our right. instinct, right? Because it's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. And yes. I can't tell you how many times I want to say that to patients. And I probably have more than once in my life said that to patients. Yeah. Um, but expressing some curiosity, like as much as I'm worried and I'm scared and I want to tell you, like, what are you thinking? Also, I can imagine mm-hmm. there's a lot going on for you and it's really complicated. So like, why do you feel the need to do this? Or what is it that, you know, skipping meals is doing? Or how does throwing up after a meal, like, 
why are, what's the function of that? Mm-hmm. Why, why do you feel the need to do that? You know, expressing some curiosity. Mm-hmm. I I just love that idea because I, I, I always feel like when I have um, been placed in these kinds of situations in the past, my gut reaction is like, oh my God, what are you doing? Stop! Totally. Right? But, but the thought, as you were talking about kind of what curiosity, expressing curiosity allows you to do, it really like takes you out of that knee-jerk gut reaction to, oh my God, stop, yeah. to thinking and opening yourself up to asking questions about what is happening and allowing that person the opportunity and the space to articulate what they're feeling and how whatever action it is that they're engaging in is they think it's helping them to get them to a better place, right? Because you said this earlier, one of the things that is kind of the the cause of these actions is unprocessed stuff, right? Emotional, physical trauma, all of those different kinds of things. And so being, I can see there being value in helping people find words to describe what it is that they're doing. And then you're not hopefully turning them off, right? Because we know already too, if you freak out, because they already feel all of this shame and guilt and a sense that what they're doing and what they're having, ha- what they're doing to their bodies or, or not doing to their bodies isn't a good thing, right? Folks know this. Um, mm-hmm. And then you just drive them deeper into a hole and they're never mm-hmm. going to come back out of it again. So I, I love that as an approach and to, you know, and naming what you said too about naming this fear of talking about it up front to say, because I think that's the other thing that I struggle with sometimes too, thinking about these things is like, yeah, but if I say something, it's going to make it worse or they're never going to want to talk to me again. Right. And, and I, I love that you shared that, you know, that's not actually the case. You're opening up this dialogue with this other person and you're expressing your care and love for them and concern that mm. something's not right, but that you're there and, and that you want to be helpful to them. Yeah. So I think that's all amazing. Yeah, right. And back to that idea of stigma, you know, that if we can help someone recognize we don't carry that stigma or right. we're trying to understand instead of judge, yes. um, yeah. that can help to, to, again, like you said, open up the space instead of mm-hmm. shut. Yeah. yeah. No, that's amazing. I want to um, mm-hmm. ask what you think we could be doing to better be more proactive in spaces of K through 12 schooling, and then also on college campuses? Yeah, that is a really, really good question. And I think um, education, K through 12, I think education for parents is actually of utmost importance. And back to that idea of what signs to look for, and then what do we do when we suspect that there's a struggle. So I think that's one piece. But I also think... um, So within the medical community, there can be a lot of, I'm trying to think how to say this politically (laughs) correct. Um, There can be, you know, a lot of unconscious bias around weight, I think. And, you know, we, again, and this is just cultural. So, so no judgment, really, truly no judgment at all, because I think it's, it's really pervasive in our culture that there's just this misnomer that a thin body is a healthy body. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so a lot of times there is, you know, I've had people end up with eating disorders in my office after, you know, maybe a physician told them as kids that they were, you know, at risk for obesity and they need to go on a diet. So not to say that it, the physician caused the eating disorder, not at all, mm-hmm. but the, that was the impetus for the development of the eating disorder. All the, these other variables would have been in place, mm-hmm. right? That led to the eating disorder. But, but if we don't educate our medical providers, our parents, 
teachers that, you know, we need to be really conscientious about the way we talk about weight mm-hmm. and our own biases around weight and thinness, you know, that we don't want to perpetuate those in our kids, that we want to talk more about health and um, being nourished properly and getting the right amount of exercise mm-hmm. and you know, exercise being about joy rather than just calorie burning and weight Mm -hmm. loss and really kind of providing education around how we can help kids understand weight, food, exercise, bodies, not from this model that we've had for so many decades of like, we have to be thin and we have to be lean, but instead about health and wellness and wholeness. Mm and also, I think it starts probably at an even more fundamental level around helping our kids deal with their emotions, mm-hmm. mindfulness skills, you know, things like that. So I know for me, 100 years ago, when I was in K through 12, there was no emphasis whatsoever on learning to manage my emotions or mm-hmm. learn any kind of mindful awareness or anything like yeah. that. I think that's changing a little bit, but it, you know, we've got a long way to go. And so if we could help our kids learn better how to deal with stressors, et cetera, you know, I think we would see reduced rates of mental illness in general. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think it would eradicate it by any means, yeah. but I think mm-hmm. in terms of college campuses, I would say similarly and lots of outreach, you know, mm-hmm. um, lots of education, lots of awareness, um, education around eating disorders, both for the, the student body, but also among the faculty, um, you know, the, the, um, increasing awareness around resources mm-hmm. too. you know uh when i was an undergrad i didn't even know that we had a student counseling center i'm sure someone told me but i i didn't really have this awareness that i had like 15 free sessions a year or whatever it was at the time and um so knowing too that there are resources and making sure that students have access to those and that they're aware of how to gain access that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and uh the, the, i mean i think those would be like my first knee-jerk reaction kind of ideas. Um, But again, I'm sure that's something we could just brainstorm about for an eternity, you know, or about the ways we could. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. No, you're not wrong. But I think those are all really great ways to start. And I, and I love the thinking through reorienting how we think about our bodies for our younger kids. Right. And thinking about relationship to food and thinking about, you know, it being something to nourish you and finding, you know, the exercise and being whatever, doing those kind of things that makes you happy. Um, I I just love those ideas. I would be curious to know, and I I just want to pick your brain on this because I think there's been a lot of conversation around the, uh, kind of body positivity and that movement to say like all bodies are good bodies and, and fundamentally like obviously no disagreement with that, but how do you balance that off? Especially I'm thinking from the clinical community because we have, you know, a, a large body of evidence and data to support, um, the, the negative outcomes that come from, you know, having too much or excess weight, um, and not monitoring the whole health, as you said, of, of people in those circumstances. And so what, what's the, what's the right solution to that conversation? Cause I think it's really complicated and, and, you know, asking, uh, for a clinician to say to a child or a child's parents, you know, they're moving in a not great direction as it relates to their weight. We need to do something about that it comes from a good place, right? It comes from a place of not wanting them to have, um, negative outcomes later in life. But also I totally hear what you're saying around that maybe being a catalyst to spiraling mm-hmm. in a not good direction yeah. either. So what it, from your perspective and expertise, what's the right balance to those yeah. conversations? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's extraordinarily nuanced and so much of it 
unfortunately, you know, is case by case. So I don't mm-hmm. know that there's a, a great sort of panacea, if you will, or a mm-hmm. great solution that that can can capture all those nuances and right. and the whole country, for example. Um, but I, I think that it is not black and white. It is mm-hmm. not a binary sort of issue, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. as much as our minds want to turn things into binaries right. because it makes it so much easier to find that solution, mm-hmm. it isn't. And you're exactly right that there needs to be an emphasis on um, having a healthy relationship with food from either direction. Mm-hmm. You know, that that we have an understanding of the things that are good for us to, to nourish our bodies that are going to fuel our bodies, but that aren't going to hurt our bodies. Mm-hmm. But also we need to, to eat enough to fuel our bodies right. and nourish our bodies. Yeah. Otherwise that hurts our bodies. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think within, you know, and this is a much broader discussion, I guess, but what I'm about to say, but education within the medical community, education mm-hmm. um, within the community at large parents and the college community that, um, eating disorders are a real threat, you know, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. we need to promote not just weight loss and thinness, right? but we need to promote a healthy relationship with food, whatever that looks like. And mm-hmm. I think on the other side of that, it's really the same thing that mm-hmm. both sides were trying to promote actually the same thing, but the right. language gets conflated. And then the two right. sides seem like they're in mm-hmm. opposition and then they start fighting with each right. other. Right. And I think what the problem in that is on both sides is a lack of consciousness mm-hmm. about what, what we're really trying to do here. Mm-hmm. You know? And so, um, you know, I've, I, I'm familiar with folks who have tried to promote this idea of health at every size, that all bodies are good bodies mm-hmm. and they've gotten death threats from people mm-hmm. who, you know, say, well, this is dangerous. And right. Um, right. And then the, the reverse is true. I know yeah. people who are sort of spearheading more of like the, um, fighting obesity um, mm-hmm. and people in the health at every size body positivity camp are, are enraged about right. it. Yeah. Right. Like, but the, the sides aren't listening to each other. Yeah. Right. And if we could, if we could bridge this gap and sort of, as a, a friend of mine says, call people in instead of call people out. Mm-hmm. Right. And actually start a conversation. Yeah, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Start a conversation and really try to understand instead of mm-hmm. being so pitted against each other, I think it might help to come to some better solutions. So if you have ideas about how we can do that, I'm I'm all ears. Well, I I wouldn't say like maybe two things, but probably three. I'm going to work through them. What I love most, the kind of first thing that kind of popped out in my head around this is that, that there is not one there's not one single solution to this problem, right? And yeah. and one of the things that we've come back to over and over again in this season of the podcast is really that, like, look, this is so complicated. And if so it was easy, we wouldn't have to talk about it because it would already yeah. be solved, right? And so how do we get used to and become more comfortable with the fact that there isn't an easy solution to this? And it's not going to be, like, a single magic pill or a single silver bullet that's going to solve all of these problems. I think we need to think about that in a different way than we historically have because we're all looking for, like, the panacea, the one solution that be like, bang, everything's roses and sunshine. And that's just not, I mean, that's not the human condition. That's not how the world works, right? I think also your observation about really both sides of these, you know, this this debate, right, such that it is, it's really actually all after, we're all after the same thing. People who are living good, healthy lives that are able to function in the world that make in a way that makes them happy, that that's the goal and and you're totally right that we're everyone's talking past each other because as um i have been the recipient of of emails on this campus from folks who are concerned about you know um 
some events that were 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 being held around um, disordered eating and you know how how can you possibly promote this in a state that has such an epidemic of obesity and it's like I see what you're saying. I do, but there's this other side of this. And, and it was just like, at the time, I didn't have the language to really dive into that and have a conversation. Um, but I think what you're saying, it's, so that's why it struck me. So like right here, I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. And inviting people into the discussion versus calling them out. That is such a yeah. antithesis of our current environment. But I love that as an idea. So why do, you know, being curious, inviting them into the discussion, asking questions to understand that perspective, like what a novel, set of ideas in this space like I just love it I just love it and it's gonna it's it's gonna be something that people are gonna be like wow why didn't I think of that earlier right right yes no that's so brilliant um I don't always practice what I preach by the way I mean I you know I I often get locked into one side or the other too and your question helps me to kind of zoom out Megan you know and remember like okay you know it is so nuanced and um and yes I understand the concerns around obesity in the state. And at the same time, I would argue a little bit that on a college campus, when it comes to eating disorders, that's not really probably as much of a concern as, right. as mm-hmm. um, but, but again, even if it is an obesity issue, that, um, that if we just understand it as a behavioral manifestation and as a acute symptom that needs to be eradicated or eliminated, mm-hmm. we're missing what this is truly about, because generally it's either going to be about, again, something that's more psychological, emotional, or, Mm -hmm. you know, other variables like poverty and Mm -hmm. lack of access to healthy food and things like this. So, you know, we, there's so many variables Mm -hmm. that contribute to this problem and just telling somebody they need to lose weight and need to go on a diet is, is really missing kind of the, the larger picture too. Right. So back to that idea of curiosity and discussion in general, um, about what needs to be done and how we can mm-hmm. help tackle the issues. Yeah, no, this is incredible. Alexis, did you have a question that I, you look like you might not be asking? I was, no, I was going to, I was going to move into wrap up if there were no awesome. other questions. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, I love the segue of like curiosity and like having a conversation mm-hmm. and calling people in. And that's what we want to do with this podcast. So mm-hmm. If you could give three takeaways for our audience, um, Liz, of what's one thing they could do for themselves to kind of have a different conversation with themselves about eating disorders, what's something they could do with their family units, um, and what's something they could do in their communities? Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say, and are we talking for folks in general or folks who think they might have some struggles with food? I think folks in general. In general, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, I would say examine your own, like, and maybe exam is not the, the best word. That's like too severe of a word, but get curious um, mm-hmm. about you know, your own stigma around mm-hmm. food, eating disorders, et cetera, weight, obesity, all of these things. Get curious about your own relationship with food um, and exercise, because I think we all have some struggles here or there, you know, mm-hmm. and it, you don't just have to have an eating disorder to have, mm-hmm. you know, any kind of, if you are a human who lives in the United States, you've probably had some kind of hangups around food, exercise, mm-hmm. weight, et cetera, at some point in your life, right? Mm-hmm. So just kind of getting curious about your own relationship, your own stigma, et cetera, around food and weight um, and exercise. And um, in ter- and what was the second piece? Family units. Yeah, family unit. Um, you know, thinking about how these things manifest in your family mm-hmm. unit as well. What have your family's ideas been about food mm-hmm. and weight and dieting and things like that? Um, 
what do you notice about that? Um, where does some of your beliefs about these things, how do, are they, how do they stem from some of your family's perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say from a community standpoint, to notice your judgments about others and mm-hmm. really try. And if you notice your, because again, we all do it. We mm-hmm. all do mm-hmm. it. And I am ashamed to admit I do too. You know, I should, but I, I caught myself having a judgment about something the other day um, that I'm not even going to share. And I caught myself though. And I yeah. reflected on it and I got curious about it. And mm-hmm. so that's what I would encourage you to do when it comes to your community is notice your own biases, notice your own judgments about folks, whether you think they're really thin, whether you think they're fat, whether you think, oh my God, I can't believe that person's eating that. You know, um, or if you think, oh my God, I wish I was anorexic. Remember, you know, that mm-hmm. I made earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, notice these things because we tend to be so unconscious about our relationships with food and bodies, et cetera. So just like, Try to get more mindful about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and remember that we never know, we never know what someone's going through. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to judge and say, oh my gosh, why are they doing that? Or they shouldn't be doing this or da, da, da. But know that usually someone's body can be a reflection of what they're struggling with on the inside, mm-hmm. whether they're underweight, overweight, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so remember that and, and have compassion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm have compassion for your fellow humans. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, thank you for all of your wisdom and sharing your knowledge and expertise um, in this in this area. I think you you said this earlier. It's a, a topic that we don't necessarily have a lot of conversations in, in the open about. And, and mm-hmm. I want to thank you for, for helping us get on the other side of that, right? We recognize that it's a problem. Let's start figuring out ways that we can solve that problem. Um, and thank you also for, for providing our listeners with some things that they can start doing right away, right? I think that that is part of what we hope to accomplish with this podcast is really giving everybody a little bit of homework that's not scary or hard, but just yeah. things that we can start thinking about and being more mindful, as you said, in in this space, because it's easy to go full zombie, unconscious, mm-hmm. just like go do the thing without really being thoughtful about what that looks like and the consequences of that action. Um, as always, folks, please let us know how you make out with uh, Dr. Woodruff's um, <laughs> thoughts and recommendations for you, your family, and our community. Um, and please join us next time for the Mail Lab podcast. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Mail Lab podcast. The Mail Lab podcast is produced by Dr. Natasha Dieter, Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, Slade Lewis, and Hannah Finch. This podcast was recorded at Broadcast Studio in Oxford, Mississippi. The show was mixed and mastered by Clay Jones, and our original music was composed by Slade Lewis. The Mayo Lab podcast is brought to you by the William McGee Institute for Student Wellbeing. For more information on the Mayo Lab podcast, head over to themayolab.com and follow us on social media at themayolab. If you enjoyed listening to the Mayo Lab podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this podcast. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Megan Rosenthal, Alexis Lee, and their guests on the show. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for the medical advice of a licensed counselor or physician. The listener should consult with their mental health professional in any matters relating to his or her health or the health of a child.